Uh, wound up our last two weeks looking at uh, the events of Holy Week. We looked at Sunday and Monday, those events uh, where Jesus seemed to be driving the story, uh, taking control of the narrative, and doing a series of symbolic acts. And then we looked at Tuesday and Wednesday. Then we sort of took a break as the church sort of picked up the story from there. We had Monday, Thursday services. We have Good Friday services. And of course, last week, uh, we celebrated the most significant and important event in the Christian year, uh, the defining event for our faith, the Easter event. Somewhere around 14,000 people were here. Did you run into a couple of them? Uh, if you could find a parking place, you were lucky. Uh, <coughs> from the beginning, uh, no surprise to any of us, but from the very beginning, the affirmation that Jesus is risen, the affirmation of the resurrection, uh, has been at the very, very, very center of our faith. Uh, our first creed, before there was a Nicene Creed, before there was an Apostles' Creed, before even the short creed, Jesus is Lord, which is one of the very, very earliest creeds, there was another creed, and it's the Easter Creed. It's simply, he has risen. The announcement the angel gives in Mark uh, to the women at the tomb. Uh, the earliest summary of our faith. I remember uh, uh, Ted Campbell's book on the Christian tradition uh, kind of helped me get a hand on this. But it's uh, as we go back and look for, you know, how far back do we know where there were attempts to summarize what it means to be a Christian and the things that we hold in common. Really, the creeds kind of come out of that uh, is the one from First Corinthians. And we've looked at this many times, but it's worth remembering. Paul says, and Paul's writing in the, in the 50s, you know, within a generation of, of the death of Jesus. I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn received. So he's claiming, not claiming he made this up or he created this or he crafted it. It's part of the tradition. It's pre-Paul. It goes back as about as early as you can get. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared he was seen is what the word really means to Cephas and to Peter um, to the 12 I'm assuming 11-ish maybe uh, <laughs> depends on if that particular tradition knows about Judas then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time only Paul tells this story we don't know anything about that some people conjecture, could that have possibly been the Pentecost story? But we don't know. Appear, apparently, he knows a tradition where over 500. And then he adds some interesting information, most of whom are still alive. If you want to go talk to them, you can interview them, and they can tell you that story. Though some have died, because he's, he's writing a generation later. Then he appeared to James. We really don't know in, from the, in the New Testament. This is the only reference we have to that, but although in Acts, we know that James the just, James the brother of the Lord, becomes leader of the Jerusalem church. But we're also told that he was not a follower of Jesus while Jesus was alive. So how do you account for a brother that is not a follower becoming head of the church? Well, Paul says Jesus appeared to him. <coughs> then to all the apostles. Is that the 11? Is that the 12? Is that more? We're not sure. Last of all, as to one untimely born, this would have to be probably two or three years later. He appeared also to me. But clearly Paul understands that he stands in this tradition of seeing the risen Lord. Uh, this is so important that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, uh, first of all, Paul is shocked. He says to the Corinthian church, 
how can some of you guys say you do not believe in the resurrection? He's just appalled. And he says this, if Christ be not raised, then my preaching to you is in vain and your faith is in vain. So you kind of get the idea that for Paul, the resurrection is a fairly significant part of the Christian faith. Uh, this core, again, uh, uh, Ted's book has a wonderful way of developing this. It becomes part of the great historic creeds of the church. You just can trace a line from Paul straight forward. Remember the Apostles' Creed? Crucified, dead and buried, third day rose again from the dead. Nicene Creed, a little bit different. Crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered, buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. What does that remind you of? 1 Corinthians 15 tradition there. Yeah. That Jesus' death was real. That he was in fact a human being who could suffer and who could literally die and that he was then raised from the dead is a part of our belief that we have had to fight for on more than one occasion. Because throughout history, there have been groups, individuals, who simply find this part of the faith a little hard to swallow, struggle with it. Maybe we could jettison that. Maybe that's a little excess baggage we don't need. <coughs> Remember the docetists from the, the word meaning he, he appeared? And he, was he really human? No, he just appeared to be human. And then that tradition you've heard of the Gnostics. Anyway, and by the way, are there Gnostics in the 21st century? Uh-huh, yeah, there are. Okay, we just don't call them that. The affirmation that we celebrate Easter morning and the affirmation that we're going to spend the next, the great 50 days celebrating uh, runs contrary. I don't know about you. I have yet to see my first corpse come to life, you know. And if it ever happens, I'm going to run as fast as I can and as far as I can. It's, it's not part of our normal experience, you know. Now, some, like the ones at Corinth, uh, seek a Christianity that would be stripped of the message. There's a couple of books. One's called Doubting Jesus' Resurrection. Uh, kind of looking at, like, do you really need to, to buy into that stuff? And the raised one's interesting because this is actually a pro-view that says, you know, doubting Jesus' resurrection actually can lead to a deeper kind of faith. But books out there that are kind of struggling with that, do, you know, do, do we really have to believe that? Now, uh, there are few sacred spaces lef left in life, right? <laughs> I grew up, Sunday morning was sacred. You didn't jack with it. Sunday night was sacred. You didn't jack with it. Wednesday night, in my Baptist tradition, sacred. You did not jack with it. Now, we have football, cheerleaders, and everything in the world on Sunday morning, right? It's just the world we live in. The last sacred space I had on the planet <laughs> was the bathroom, you know. There go, yeah. At, first time I ran into it was at Chili's. I just thought, this ain't right. You know, this is, where, where are you going to put these signs? But have you been to our bathrooms? Yes. Have you seen the resurrection poster? Yes. Okay. You know, little, little, uh, the, you know, I guess it's just too, too wonderful a space to pass up. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this poster has a couple of questions. And I thought, you know, as we're entering into the Easter season, as we're going to begin to kind of explore the, the Easter narratives and the resurrection narratives, these are great questions. Uh, I don't know who came up with them, but I didn't, but they're great. Here's the first one. Do you actually believe it? You know, you're a Christian. You come to church. Do you actually 
because a lot of people would not, correct? There's a lot of people in the church who would understand it in all kinds of interesting ways, but would ne not necessarily say that would be a particularly strong one for them. And then the other question I thought was really neat was, so what? What does it mean to you? And so with those two questions kind of on our mind and in our face in certain places, uh, it's going to give us an opportunity to explore the stories that we have in the New Testament. Here's our niche. We don't do what the sanctuary does. We do not do what, what Paul does in Cornerstone. We do not do what Jeff does in Cox. What we do in here is really basically to look at Bible stories. Sometimes you deal with themes and topics, but mostly we want to just kind of work through the stories using contemporary scholarship and just, you know, shed some light so maybe when we walk out we understand that story a little bit better, a little more nuanced than we did before. So we're going to do that with the resurrection stories. Now, it surprises some people. Did you know the resurrection is not in the Bible? Some people did not know that. I did not know that the first time I read it. Yeah. The actual <laughs> resurrection of Jesus itself is not in the Bible. You know, the first account we have of it is from a uh, gospel. It's probably second century called the Gospel of Peter. And it's a doozy. You know, we got angels as tall as the sky, you know, coming out. And then the figure that's that goes beyond the sky and then there's a bazillion foot high cross that walks and talks now that's how you tell the story of easter right okay <laughs> you know, just uh human imagination you know kind of went to work with that later but in the new testament itself it's it's striking that it's understated you know think what you could have done with that story you know nowhere not matthew not mark luke john paul anywhere you know just simply not there what we have or stories after the fact. What happened after? You know, when the, when the women come to the tomb, where's the stone? It's already been rolled. Something's already happened. So the story picks up at that point. We have the tradition of the empty tomb, which we're going to look at today. And we have the various appearances of Jesus, which we'll talk about for the next four, week, four or five weeks. In the New Testament, I know Terry Jones said there were 23, and you know, it's, it's, it's all in the definitions, how you define this, but there are over 20 either resurrection stories, narratives, or references. Like Paul said, he appeared to. We don't have the story, but the, there's a clear reference to that, accounts there. Uh, numbers vary because in, in one case, we have some in Mark starting at verse 9 to 20, there's three there that may be duplications of some others. So we may have one story appearing twice. We've got several stories of the women at the tomb. One is one woman, and that woman would be Mary Magdalene. We've got one account where there's two women. We have one account where there's three women. So are, are those duplications of the same thing? Uh, we have 12 in the foreign canonical gospel. Matthew has this. They start building. Matthew has two. Remember the walk to Emmaus? One of the ones that's in there. Lu uh, I'm sorry, that's an action. Luke. Matthew has two. Luke has three. John has four. Because John has two chapters of resurrection. Matthew and Luke each have one chapter. And then there's Mark. And we'll talk about Mark here a little bit because Mark's a, a special case. We've got four in Acts. And here the question becomes, you've got the, uh, the ascension story. Now in Luke, that clearly appears to be a resurrection narrative, right? Because the, 40 the great 50 days end or 40 days end, and Jesus, you know, assumes. So is that a resurrection narrative or is that something different? And then three more times in Acts, you've got where Jesus appeared <coughs> to someone. 
well, this is he's appeared after in Luke or Acts. He's already ascended. So, but it, but these are appearances, Jesus. We've got six in First Corinthians, in that little list that Paul gives us. We've got one in Revelation, because uh, who, who does John see? Who speaks to John? Who reveals everything to John? So you know, for many people, that would be a resurrection narrative. And you've got one in the Gospel of Hebrews which is a later tradition, but you've got that wonderful little reference to in Paul that Jesus appear, that appeared to James. And what we actually have in the Gospel of Hebrews, we've got the story. It's at, it's at a communion service where that happens. Uh, also, the Gospel of Peter, but that appears to be somewhat later. Uh, some elements are found in all four Gospels. For example, that, a, that women were present at the t- the, on the Easter morning at the tomb in the form of the Gospels that we have them today, is constant. It's in Matthew, it's in Luke, it's in John, and it's in the form of Mark that most of us have in our Bible. Uh, other elements tend to be kind of unique. For example, the individual appearance story. You know, you've got uh, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved racing to the tomb. Which Gospel? Gospel of John. You've got the two guys on the road to Emmaus. Which Gospel? So we have individual stories. They, the, the, individu- the stories themselves seem to vary. Uh, so you start piling up the numbers real quick. Um, we have within these stories what look like f- no less than four distinct traditions. Um, there's people who sometimes it used to be called the Easter, or the Passover plot, the Easter conspiracy. There's this great conspiracy that we all got. You know, if this is a conspiracy, it's the least organized conspiracy that ever existed. Because every gospel is just a little bit different, you know. Uh, one tradition, clearly, is the empty tomb tradition. Uh, and it's found in all four Gospels, but it's not mentioned in Paul's summary. Does that mean that Paul doesn't know about it? Or maybe that Paul just didn't mention it? We simply don't know that. Uh, some accounts narrate the empty tomb without the appearances. Where would that be? Mark. In the oldest versions of Mark that we have. Some accounts narrate the appearances without the empty tomb. Paul. Most account for both. For example, this is Mary Magdalene, and she comes to the tomb early on Sunday morning, and the, the tomb is what? And she thinks there's a gardener and all that kind of thing. And then she meets who? Jesus. So there you have an empty tomb tradition combined with a resurrection narrative. Uh, when you look at the appearance stories themselves, there's, they're not all carbon copies of each other. There seem to be um, different traditions even within that. Some narratives are going to go out of their way. This, this is a, any of y'all see uh, Son of God? Great movie. Don't see Noah, okay? <laughs> if you want to watch a sci-fi movie, go see Noah, but don't relate it to the Bible, okay? But the Son of God, in terms of just working with the biblical story, is a wonderful presentation. Uh, this is a scene from that. Some narratives that go out of their way to stress the physicality. That what we're talking about here is a walking, talking, breathing human body. Uh, of course, these stories are going to reinforce the empty tomb tradition. What's, what's the point of an empty tomb story? Jesus is he's not there. His body's not there. His body is elsewhere. Some people say, well, that's, you know, the disciples stole it and hid it and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, but anyway, it's, it's about the body. So we have a tradition here, too. They stress that he has a physical body, uh, and he's not a, a, a you know, disembodied spirit or a ghost. As a matter of fact, 
we actually have some tradition within the Gospels where Jesus has to tell his disciples because they think he's a ghost. They think he's a spirit, and that rattles their cages a little bit. So he has to say, I ain't. You know, I have flesh and bones. He's not a spirit of ghost. We got a story where Jesus breaks bread. Hard to do if you're in corporeal spirit. And my favorite in Luke, he eats fish. Okay, must have been a Friday, right? Uh, <laughs> stories also stress that the resurrection body of Jesus was the exact same body. Sort of contrary to what Paul would be arguing in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not a different body. Uh, Jesus shows the holes and hands of his feet. You know, what's the point of that? What body was that? That was the one on the cross. It's not different. He offers let Thomas put the hands and wounds in his, in, in his side hand. Luke and John both stressed this. Other narratives seem to make the opposite point, uh, that the resurrected body is not like anybody you and I have ever run into. For example, do you remember the story where Jesus appears suddenly inside of a locked room? And the import of the story is the door is still locked. But somehow he got in here. And so that has a little bit different tradition. We have several stories, not, not just the Emmaus story, but several stories where disciples go, who is that guy? They don't recognize him. So if it's a body and if it's Jesus, there's something about that. Um, road to Emmaus, two disciples walk with the risen Jesus for miles that recognize him. Although Mark's, I think, has a different version of this, a shorter version, and it's Mark that adds they couldn't recognize him because... He was in a different form. We're not told what form that was, but it's a different form. And then how did they recognize him? Do you remember? In the breaking of bread. Good sermon right there. Still other narratives seem to indicate that the resurrection appearances were understood as visions. Uh, in Paul's letters, his self-references, and in the book of Acts when it refers to Paul and Paul's visions and Paul's uh, Damascus Road story, uh, both of these traditions seem to give the, the implication that what we have is a visionary kind of experience. As a matter of fact, Paul will even say flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes in this long excursus about, well, there's a resurrected body, but it's not the body that we would normally have. You remember what he called it? Spiritual body, you know, psychonuma. It's a different kind of thing. Um, Paul can even say, yet, yet even Paul can say, because it's a vision, that Jesus appeared to all the disciples at the same time. Now, that's not normally a vision, right? Visions are normally unique to an individual. Um, but Paul's aware that, that even if he thinks vision, that it happened to 12, even that it happened to over 500, which is a way of saying that, that the tradition is, 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 is complicated, it's nuanced. So for the next six weeks, we want to use the season of Easter leading up to Pentecost to basically explore these various Christmas stories. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the, the last week, we'll look at the longer ending of Mark and look at what Paul has to say. Uh, we want to begin today with the Gospel of Mark, which is the earliest of the Gospels. Most scholars would agree with that. Uh, and we want to begin with what is pretty much universally accepted now as the original ending of that gospel. So we want to hear Mark's Easter story as we think Mark wrote it and as we think Mark intended us to hear it. 
and it's a little different from the one in your Bible. We'll talk about that in a second. So it's the earliest, most ancient narrative. Now, Paul has referenced resurrection accounts 20 years earlier, a uh, generation earlier. But in terms of actual stories, this is as far as it. And Mark is by far the most controversial. So scholarly cons uh, consensus is that, that Mark's gospel originally ended at 168 uh, that's not where most of your modern Bibles end. Although if you have a study Bible, there may be a clear break and there's <laughs> a flurry of footnotes at the bottom of the page of oh, what's going on. The original ending of Mark is abrupt, it is shocking, and it is powerful, which is probably Mark's intent. Uh, Mark originally ended with the story of the women at the tomb on Easter morning, and this is the narrative. This is as best we can reconstruct how Mark's gospel originally ended. When Shabbat was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, probably not Mary the mother of Jesus and James, and Salome brought spices. Well, why were they doing that? Why did they? Why were they doing that on Sunday? Yeah. Uh, part of the story is that the, that Jesus had to be taken down quickly because the <coughs> Sabbath was coming, and so they had not done what tradition said should be done, so they're coming out as quickly as they can. Uh, so they might go to anoint him. Very early the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, one of the other Gospels, John, I think, says before the sun, but right about that time, they went to the tomb. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. By the way, archaeologically found a ton of those babies all over Israel. Uh, some of you know the, uh, the garden tomb. That's actually a 7th century 8th century B.C. tomb, but uh, the, uh, that kind of thing is well known. Lots of examples. They entered the tomb, saw a young man. Now, if you read the book of Daniel lately, what does a young man always tell you? Particularly if he's dressed in white. It's an angel. Okay. Biblical language for an angelic being. A young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. The right side is the position of yeah, authority, power, favor. By the way, sitting would be an ancient way of, of uh, referencing a teaching. Remember all those images of uh, Byzantine images of Christ seated, the great teacher holding his hand up. Uh, and they were alarmed. I think I would be too. But he said to them, don't be afraid. You ever notice in the Bible, every time they say don't be afraid, it's a terrifying moment, you know. <laughs> And it's generally because God is just about to cut loose with something, you know. You were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Yeah, that would be why we're here. He's been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. Exhibit A, he ain't here. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. That's interesting. Peter didn't make the cut of the disciples. Of course, there had been the whole three times he denied him. We're not sure what that's about. Uh, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out, fled from the tomb, in terror and amazement had seized them. And so they did exactly what the angel asked them to do. Not. They said nothing to anyone. Easter died right here because, you know, obviously at some point they had to tell the story for they were afraid. And we think pretty sure 
Those were the last words in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, that's how he ended the story. Broad consensus. This is where it ended. They fled in terror and amazement. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's how you end the Gospel, right? Are you surprised that there's no more than four, no less than four different additional endings to Mark that are tacked on in the next few centuries, you know? Uh, there's the longer version, which your Bible probably has. Uh, it's found in most of our Bibles. Uh, it will add three resurrection appearances. Now, what is interesting is these, this additional verses, the longer ending, the three resurrection narratives, are missing from all of the most ancient and significant manuscripts. <coughs> we actually have one partial manuscript of Mark from the second century, about the year 150, 160. What's interesting about it is that it's a partial. It doesn't have anything of, of chapter 16, so we don't know whether or not it had. We do have a couple of wonderful manuscripts. Have you ever heard of Vaticanus and Sinaiticus? Uh, two of the great 4th century manuscripts, probably commissioned by the emperor. Uh, these are the ones. Uh, Vaticanus now resides in the Vatican. I forget where it was discovered. Sinaiticus was discovered in uh, St. Catherine's Monastery at Sinai. Uh, what's interesting about both of these, and they're great, great uh, manuscripts of the Bible, uh, neither one have the longer ending. This is the 300s, late 300s. Second century fathers, Clement of Alexandrian origin, do not appear to know about the longer ending. Jerome and Eusebius in the 4th century tell us that they know about the longer ending, but they're aware, because they know manuscripts, that it was not in the earlier manuscripts. A uh, few manuscripts did contain the longer ending, and generally you have some scribal notes that this this observe off the side, you know, this this wasn't in the original older manuscripts that we know about, kind of thing. Your Bible probably notes uh, that these additional verses are not original, but goes on to include them because it is a very ancient edition, and it's one that's found in a lot of uh, manuscripts just a little bit later. So it's clear. The Gospel Mark originally ended <coughs> verse 8. Uh, the earliest narrative Easter morning did not contain any resurrection appearances. It contained just, as far as we can reconstruct, the empty tomb story. So, question on the floor. Why? You know, why were these other verses added? Why would you change Mark's Easter story? Well, best guess is you don't like the way it ends. <laughs> it's not how I, wa I want the gospel to end. And so there's this flurry in the manuscripts of multiple attempts there's the freer ending, the shorter ending, the longer ending, trying to make it acceptable. The, the, the shortest one simply says, and the meat women immediately went out and did exactly what the angel told them to do. And because of that, the gospel has now gone to the four corners of the world. That's how you end it. Still no resurrection appearances, by the way. But at least they didn't uh, you know, guard the angels. Mark ended at the empty tomb. No appearances of Christ. The women flee in terror. They're not telling anyone what happened. It appears that this is Mark's intent. We've got multiple versions of the Easter story. This is his intent. This is what he wants us to know. So our goal for the next few minutes is simply to look at this original ending, uh, the earliest Christ, uh, Easter story, and to ask, what's Mark trying to say to us about Easter and about that morning? Okay, the three women who come to the tomb are the same three who've stood at the foot of the cross in Mark at the crucifixion. These women, as we know, do not see the risen Jesus. They see another figure. 
uh, someone described as a young man. Uh, and if you know your, your Jewish scriptures and you know the revelatory accounts, particularly if you've been reading Daniel, you're immediately clued in that this is meant to be interpreted, that an angel is there. So that's the tradition. Uh, he's dressed in white, a common way of describing a heavenly main, uh, messenger. He acknowledges, well, I love this, the angel basically first thing to the, wo- the women is, I know why you're here. And it ain't good. Okay. The real reason they've come to the tomb Easter morning, uh, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth is crucified, which means did they arrive at the tomb expecting to find Jesus raised? It's the last thing in the world they're thinking about. You know. They're not thinking this is Easter morning. They're thinking this is Black Sunday after Black Saturday. You know, they've come because they're looking for the dead body of Jesus and so they can anoint it. Um, the angel then gives them the Easter message. He is not here. He is risen. Go tell Peter and the disciples and he will meet them in Galilee. Uh, Matthew and John are going to add to the narrative stories that we'll look at next few weeks about Jesus meeting the disciples in Galilee. Uh, Mark does not give us those. Mark just says that's where it's going to happen next. Matthew and John will actually give us those stories. Uh, Now, the women have an immediate response to the message. It's one of great, deep, compelling faith, right? No, that's not what's happening. You know, they're not rejoicing. You know, he's risen. He's not here. You would think that would be good news. Now, 2,000 years later, it's good news. That morning, it was a little scary, okay? They're terrified. Uh, Mark tells us that they then fled in terror and amazement. Um, and then what follows is, for many people, the most troubling part of the story. And probably the reason that we begin to get additions to the story. Mark tells us that the women didn't, did not do what the angel had instructed them to do. Last thing we see is the south side of three women headed north. Okay, They're just boogieing right out of there, you know. The angel asked them to tell Peter the disciples that Jesus is risen. Instead, Mark tells us they did not do that. They were just so terrified, they ran away. And with that, of course, the original version of Mark comes to a close. Now, again, we can assume at some point from the story that the story did get told. You know, terror does not last forever, fortunately. At some point, you just have to stop running and think it through. Uh, Otherwise, we simply would not know the story. Stories of Jesus appearing to various people were probably known to Mark. There's no reason to think that, that, that Mark did not know there were stories that he could have used because uh, who's the guy 20 years earlier that already mentioned six of them? Paul. Uh, so within Christian tradition, so there, there's uh, within a few years, Matthew and Luke are both going to have stories they can use. Uh, Paul's writing a generation earlier. Uh, as near as we can guess, from Mark, the actual resurrection stories, if he knows about them, are simply not important. They do not help him make the point that he wants to make about Easter morning. Now, he's somewhat alone in this. The other gospel writers will want to add some stories. Um, so let's assume for a moment that Mark knows what he's doing, and this is intentional, and this is the way he wants to end his gospel, at an empty tomb, you know. What's the message? One, it was totally unexpected. We have a story of two disciples headed north, going back to Galilee. Why? Remember that story? Part of that story is, is one of the saddest lines in the Bible. Jesus appears, walks on beside them, they're talking, 
and they begin to tell Jesus everything that happened like he needed to know. Uh, and they, that line is, but we had hoped that he would be the one to save Israel. And that's one of the saddest statements in the Bible. Clearly, they have no hope. Clearly, they think it's over. It's shocking. It's overwhelming. It's terrifying. Um, rising from the dead is not expected. It's an interesting thing. Uh, abstractly, the Jewish people, for at least going back to the Maccabean period, for 150 years or so, resurrection of the dead was a Jewish belief, right? Something they expected. They expected it at the end of time. And they expected it that everyone would be raised. There was not an expectation that an individual would be raised or that the Messiah would be raised or that their rabbi would be raised. This caught them flat-footed. That was even possible. I, if you begin to look to the various narratives and stories, what it looks like is there's not anybody out there among the disciples who were expecting it or found it easy to accept. Across the board, there seems to be, the, the theme seems to be one of disbelief. How can this be? You know? And yet, what is the message on Easter morning? Well, the impossible has happened. Uh, the tomb is empty. The message from the angel is he is risen. And for Mark, this is conjecture, but makes sense to me, that no appearance story could top that. No story of the risen Lord could be better or more powerful or more profound than looking at an empty tomb and an angel giving you the message. He's not here. He's risen. And in some ways, it's almost like the Thomas story. Remember the Thomas story? When it ends, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Thomas, because you have seen and believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And Mark ends with that. Do you have to actually see the risen Jesus to believe? No. Because Mark's audience, 60, 65, 70 AD, are they having resurrection experiences? No. So they have to believe without having seen. And so Mark's gospel and John's gospel both lift that up in a very powerful way. So as the gospel closes, the first readers of Mark are left standing in utter awe of what God is doing. And with the first Christian creed, he is risen. And from there, the movement is born and spreads and the faith begins. Next week, we want to look at the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew has also got an empty tomb story with some variations on the theme. Uh, he's also going to add two appearance stories. Uh, we're going to have appearance to the women who are already at the tomb. These are going to narrate a story that they do, in fact, see Jesus. And then we're going to have the appearance to the eleven. So.